The lesson is love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. For me, when I think of consent and particularly black bodies and animals and touch and the violations that have been historically in place and how we're finding new language, new ways to be together. I feel like the question I often have is, can we slow down and acknowledge what's happened? Can we just see all the levels of choice that are given to folks and all the ways that choice is not given to folks? The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. Welcome to the Lesson is Love podcast, where my guests are creative, inspiring change makers. I see these conversations as a brave practice of learning out loud and relating to all beings as beloved kin. Every time a person witnesses another with empathy, we shape our species a little bit closer to the best case scenario, universal fluency in life's most nourishing skill, unconditional love. I'm Grisha Stewart, best known for developing behavior adjustment training, BAT, which gives dogs with trauma or neglect histories an opportunity to safely open to connection. I'm also the founder of the Grisha Stewart Academy, a collaborative online dog school. Our global experts teach professional dog trainers and the curious public how to nurture healthy community with dogs. As an embodied human, I'm also a dog mom, wife, daughter, widow, stepmother, aunt, friend, musician, and always, always a student. Hey everybody, it's Diane here. I am so excited to welcome on to the podcast today, Erin Johnson, a facilitator, public speaker, and touch specialist working to identify and interrupt barriers between people. In this episode, Grisha and I talk with Erin about singing and other activities as a spiritual and life practice versus a performance, the importance of tender touch in our lives, consent, the practice of tracking to expand our awareness of others and cultivate more safety, and how our relationships with dogs can teach us about community. I hope you enjoy this episode. Erin, I am so glad you're here with us today. It's been, as you said before the show, months in the making, and you are one of my favorite humans in the world. I think you're a, a change maker that really takes a lot of the big picture into account and also the very tiny picture. I love the way that you teach using harmony. I've been to a workshop of yours, a weekend workshop, and seen you at multiple events and seeing the way that you navigate through sound and getting people to sort of check in with each other is something that I I so appreciate. And I guess I just want to ask you, what role does music play in the work that you do? And could you use that as sort of a way to overview the work that you do? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Music has been a critical shaping of who I am. Probably before I was born, I was born into a family of pastors. My mom and dad were pastors when I was coming into the world of a small conservative church of God, even like saints. And we sing acapella music. And so in my mom's womb, I was in congregational singing of mostly black folks singing acapella music. And it was just, when I was born, I came into that family and we sang in that container. And at the time it felt normal. It felt almost unconscious of how the rest of the world didn't sing acapella as much as we did and did not sing in that African heritage lineage that we can date right up against slavery into slavery. And so there's a way that was just in the backdrop. And so I grew up 
with some really amazing singers, but it wasn't about singing as more of a spiritual practice. And so the whole performance piece did seep in a little bit into the church structure, but it didn't as a primary. And so I grew up singing and eventually singing at a pretty high level as far as technical high level by accident. But the spiritual element was always the kind of primary. And so we sang in hospitals, we sang on the street, we sang in clothing stores, you know. And so as a group, we didn't just limit the stage. And so for me, it did set me up a little bit just tender and pivotal around where music set in my body. So I eventually went to high school and they got in competitive choir. I sang in the national choir and the state choir. So these got a little more formal of like music as competition, but it wasn't my birthplace of music. And so after I kind of gone through all those musical trauma stories of music being competition, I kind of arrived in my 30s. I'm 41 now, arrived in my 30s going, I don't think I really want to make music technical as the foundation, but music as medicine, music as grief, music as uh, a spiritual practice as the centerpiece. And that really is shaped holistic resistance, is shaped grief to action, and has shaped the crunk and our touch. You, almost as I have questions as a backdrop of everything that I do, I would say music is more so the background of everything I do. So if I'm a corporate office consulting or if I'm in a workshop in Eugene, Oregon, you'll find that I'll still be bringing some earth and some singing some earth and some singing is a constant part of how I show up with people's hearts. Mm. That piece in there of the trauma of competition, that phrase versus the collaboration that comes with music and the spirituality. Mm. Yeah. I'd like to circle it back to just sort of a, a small piece. What was the last time you were pleasantly surprised? <laughs> Yesterday I was had to go and do some like admin bank land work. And it was just a lot of like bank stuff. And I remember just saying, I need to get to the earth and do some sledding. And I just don't take for granted anymore. Now I'm, as I get a little older, mature, you know, feeling tight in my body and feeling immediate, I'm within five minutes, immediate release in my mental, physical body and being. And that feels like a profound surprise because there's a lot of ways that promises me made about healing. And I'm like, oh, feet on the earth, harness on my back, pull some weight across the earth. And five, ten minutes later, I'm a different energetic being. Wow. I was surprised. You know, I've done this, I don't know, hundreds of times in the last, it just here on the earth, here in North California, I was like, wow, I just don't take for granted that world moment of this is healing. It's working. And so yeah, that was about 12 hours ago. Wow. So paint me a picture a little bit more. So you've got a harness on and like you're pulling something? Track athletes and football athletes oftentimes use this exercise. They call it the sled and it's a metal container machine, simple device. You sit weights on top of it. You hook a strap to it. You hook it to your back and you use you know, it a belt. It can be, you can handhold it, but I have a little vest that goes that loops in the front and the back and I just hook it to the back and I just usually walk. At first it was a workout. Now it's more of a meditation. Oftentimes I walk with my feet just on the earth. And it's something historically powerful about the pressure on my chest, the calorie burn of just like moving something across the earth, but also the mental piece. I, I imagine I'm coughing up some stuff around in my slavery material. I'm sure I'm coughing up some earth grounding material. It's just something about that workout out of all the workouts that I do, the sled is the medicine and so it's supposed to be for athletes to run faster but now i just use it as like a a weighted meditation is what i call it mm. that's right and you played football before is that right 
in high school. I played school. four okay. years in high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like I can picture that now, the device. And also I'm thinking that's sort of like a, some ventral contact, like the contact to our chest is like, so it's so much like a hug. Like, so right now we have, and those of you listening can't see, but there is a baby with us and being held and in a comfortable position. And some of that like chest to chest contact is something that was really nourishing to us as babies if we got it. Do you think it has anything to do with that? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's part of our touch plan. When I do it, the crank and a touch folks, we all try and always find compression on the chest and that vest has proven to be that piece along with, I think, the old i feel like pulling something across the earth is an old movement for humans and so i think there's something about that just like dragging something across the earth it's like the kettlebell very old movements that i think our body's been doing for a while and for me i think my own like grief and release comes from me when i think about ancestral labor of my lineage of being african heritage in the united states there's something about me feeling like i can really track my ancestors a bit when i'm pulling versus a bench press or a power clean, those don't necessarily feel the same way as far as ancestors. I don't think my, my ancestors were bench pressing. We, that's not what they were doing. But they probably were pulling something. There's something about like that, the ancient human labor of pulling that feels like I tap into that when I do the sled specifically. And one of the things that you were teaching about in the class that I took was this very important concept that Black men are chronically undertouched. Could you talk about that? Totally. I think the cup project is great because you talk about dogs in this show. And I, I was thinking of myself when I first discovered being crunk and touched. I remember I was not having a panic attack per se, but having this moment of like, how did I survive 11 to 18? What did I do? Because I wasn't getting hardly any touch at that particular time. And I was like, what did I do? And I remember a pretty low point early. Maybe I was 13, a low point where I, I didn't want to be on the earth anymore. I remember as I was in that moment of choosing to be here, the single thing I remember saying I wanted to do was to who's going to take care of Toby if I'm not here. And Toby was my dog. You know, people say you have, you have one dog in your life. <laughs> you have many, but you get one dog that just like is your dog. Toby was my dog. That was the dog that we just hung out together. We ate apples together. We hunted. We did everything together. And the point is that she was my touch plan. She was the living being that I could cuddle, I could feel grounded in. And so for myself, the Crying Gonna Touch project formally started eight years ago in, in a sense of the vocabulary and the mentorship and the website, the website didn't come till a couple of months ago, but maybe a year ago now. But the practice of it was maybe eight years ago. But my survival of it was my entire life. And the critical survival point was when I was 11 years old to about 18 and, and Toby covered that that arc of time. And so I, I say that because the crunk and a touch is an acknowledgement that America as a whole has a complex and limited relationship with touch. So there are many mm -hmm. folks that fit in the chronically undertouched category, mm -hmm. but there are certain populations like all things in the United States around oppression where they get targeted and framed specifically profoundly. And there's a short list probably of many groups that have that, but the, the genie I'm gonna speak to right now is the black male body. And the black male body, black cis male body specifically, has a lineage in America of being weaponized, being you know given the title of brute, which is kind of formed during slavery, but definitely came to its kind of national 
campaign to justify lynching post-slavery. And so we still have that hurt trauma story propaganda machine still alive today. So our many black men that have a lot of tender, tender space around creating platonic touch with each other and with others. And so the Chronicle of Touch project fits into noticing that, slowing that down and realizing how that ripples in all kinds of parts of our life and identity in our world. So the Chronicle of Touch project to me is the most ambitious, most tender project I have taken on in my life and probably is going to be a core part of my life's work. Yeah, I, well, I was watching your TED Talk this morning and it felt so resonant when you were talking about tender touch with Black men specifically being an ungoogleable act. I just felt that really viscerally. And yeah, it just makes me think of like the immense amount of grief that there is in platonic touch not being a part of our lives in a regular way, in a safe way for many of us. And just also like you talk about in the TED Talk, like how it's necessary, like breath is necessary and like water is necessary and how we've survived so long without it or without it in its most ideal state. And so, yeah, I'm excited too to circle back to Toby because yeah, a lot of people get that, I think, from their non-human companions that have much, much higher capacities for tenderness, I think, than many humans have because of the mountains of oppression that we have to like traverse and the way that that trauma impacts how we relate to other people. So yeah, I'm grateful for you for bringing that into the space because it's just like, it's heavy and it's also people's real lives, like people's sometimes existence for decades before they ever even realize that that's a possibility. If ever, if anyone ever is able to show them or open that for them or reach for them in the way that I think you reach for people. Mm. There's something I will say that is a lot more Googleable. We can follow that thread out a little bit with dogs is black men with their dogs. I find that we're more likely to see tenderness running the houses that are on fire to get their dogs out and people to understand why they're doing that until they kind of slow down the magnitude of what is that animal holding for that man why he would risk life and everything to go into a fire building with no fire gear on to get his dog out. You know, there's viral videos showing these shots and it's not the only one that's Googleable, but it actually makes sense to really start to hold the clear healing need and active interruption that animals are holding in our in-between time as we learn how to diversify our touch practice to not only be on our pets, which is great and important and not to be replaced, but to be added to a touch plan. So one of the things that's unique about the way that I approach dog training, and so that's as part of the school, is this this concept of we are living in community with dogs. So we are not here to make them do what we want them to do, but we are here to figure out ways that they have needs and we have needs and how do those needs get met collaboratively. And so one of the things is cooperative care. So we, we work on 
teaching dogs to be able to give consent or active participation in the ways that they are touched. And one of the things that you mentioned in the in the workshop was not just that there's an undertouch in tender ways, but there's sort of overtouch in ways that violate. And so this concept of consent kind of, there's just so much in that from like physical violence to, you know, touching black people's hair or like all the ways that sort of your bodies, there's not as much consent around. That's huge. I think you say consent and this material and I'm already getting chills because it's such a flashpoint of, I was just talking to some consent teachers around how they teach consent and how we can continue to bring in the acknowledgement of violation of bodies in this country. Our country has been built off of violating consent. And so there's a, it's a tough line, right? Because every time I go into a chicken coop that doesn't have chickens that have been brainwashed to not fight for their eggs, I'm stealing their eggs to eat. So a chicken that's been bred in a feed barn, they're taught to be like passive about their chicken eggs. Being a couple of generations of wild chickens, you come, <laughs> you come in a coop to come for their eggs. They're like, no, eggs. Eggs. You're like, no, I got the eggs, you know? So every time you go into a store, you're, you're violating, you're taking them, they're young to, to fry them up, to have protein in your body. This is a part of being a meat eater. Every time you go to a, you know, a tree and you break off a fruit, there's a way in which we, our interaction so quick, we have to kind of produce and, and do it. There's a way that we don't quite track where these lines are of, of where consent becomes a little, not fuzzy, but needs to have some just expansive thinking of what it means to take from to nourish one uh, we see it in nature a lot when a snake eats a, a mouse there's this kind of place where there's a violation the mouse doesn't want to be eaten but snake needs to eat and there's a way of where we have dogs and we have capital structures where we we want to still respect consent but know that it's not always as stark as one might have it in a in a room with the animal or with other human being doesn't mean that we justify the egg thief so we can now take from a person, not at all. But it's more of just saying that there's a way we get to ask and acknowledge when we are crossing a line. How do we honor the sacrifice, the labor of the fruit of the tree of the earth? And so for me, when I think of consent and particularly black bodies and animals and touch and the violations that have been historically in place and how we're finding new language, new ways to be together, I feel like the question I often have is, can we slow down and acknowledge what's happened? Can we just see all the levels of choice that are given to folks and all the ways that choice is not given to folks? And so for me, I don't want to get too far in the weeds of just being in a, a powerful country like the United States and how much just our existence is a constant extractive nature from the world in which we live in. And I want to come back to the room we're in, which is us three on this Zoom call, but we're talking about rooms we're in. It is still valuable. To, to say, okay, I am going to, uh, and, I, and I would love to hear more about consent and dog ownership because that's something I'm constantly tracking. We got a new puppy just recently, two weeks ago. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm tracking is when I look at consent, the conversation is still, I feel not early, but we're still learning how to help it fit effectively into diverse environments of human beings. And so I think a lot of the folks that I first started talking to about this were white women mostly in predominantly the Northwest, predominant upper upper to middle class economic structure and had very little exposure to people to global majority and very little exposure to black bodies and very little muscle to work around what does it mean to actually consider that in their education, to consider that 
in their personality, consider that in their actual daily activity, and to find their balance of of true integrity about what it means to teach consent beyond supporting other white women who need support, but also aren't the only ones that need consent, language and education. And so that that piece feels like a a still evolving conversation. I'll land with two things. One is that when I think of consent, animals and black bodies, I realize that when one is in a place of chronically undertouched state, consent feels painful. It feels restrictive sometimes. It feels like I'm smothering myself from the one thing I could probably get access to touch with. And then I think about the other piece, and that is when I think about animals, the dog has been bred by humans for a very long time to fit our needs. So we need like a livestock animal. We bred an animal that made that. We need an animal that hunted a particular kind of animal. We bred that. And I don't know from the original wolf how much consent was even thought about as we provide all these hunting breeds and all these livestock breeds and all these cuddle breeds. Now we have cuddle breeds. We have, <laughs> their main purpose <laughs> is to be kind of a cuddle animals for us. And I thought that there's a way to think about like the ways that we've altered the dog DNA to fit the human need is a level to examine. I think for, for black bodies and other bodies that have been bred, forced bred to serve white people in the United States, there is a parallel of consent inquiry needed to check in and go, huh, there's a deep hurt that needs to be named and maybe grieved and bring it to the surface and acknowledged and maybe slowed down and examined of how we want to proceed in shaping our needs and not thinking about the actual the being that we're altering to fit particular need. And so when I look at animals that need C-sections by force just to be born because of how they were bred to be a place, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, how, how we, have we thought about that animal really well to have bred them to a place where they can't have a natural birth? The C-section is the safest way to bring this particular breed into the world. It, it feels normal in the in the kind of dog-making world, but in, in actual reality, biologically, right. <laughs> like, no, it doesn't. Like, what? But, because we had to have a c-section to make it happen so you know you're gonna pay a premium price it's kind of normal particularly american behaviors around animal care or not care that i feel like is just it feels like it's in the air and not slowed down around consent so i just want to name that not to get too far in the weeds on that but just name that there's a there's a built-in violation that feels normal and i think for me i'm constantly coughing up that place where the lack of choice feels like a normal day in the world the word that you mentioned in there, it was a word that was new to me when you shared it in the workshop was tracking, like tracking each other. And you mentioned a lot of like, you know, track each other as you're singing, you know, can you hear the other person? Can you hear yourself? Are you paying attention to the ways that you're impacting other people? And if you have a position of power, are you tracking that? Because people who are in a position of less power are are going to be tracking for their own safety, but are you tracking other people who have less power than you for the safety that they have and the freedoms and the joy? Like, are you inhibiting, been paying a lot of attention to that in my relationship with people over whom I have systemic power and then also vice versa, paying attention in terms of my husband and how he is with the dogs and like all the ways that we don't notice things. And so can you expand on the word tracking for folks? <laughs> I borrowed it from the rewilding community. I did some consulting for several organizations that do rewilding or ancestral skills, which is like tracking, harvesting food from the wild and high tanning and many other amazing 
practices that would probably fit under the umbrella of that. And so one of the things I was just moved by was the sharing of tracking and how you could learn so much about an animal by going through and following its movement through across landscapes. And I don't consider myself a good tracker of actual animals in the real world. I feel like I have a lot to learn there and look forward to going with those professional trackers and learn even more because it's such a life practice. Like this is something that the native population that culture has done so well and many cultures have done really well of being how they create food, but also just like understand their environment, including their war practices as well. So for me, tracking was powerful for me when we were tracking, I think it was some birds. We were tracking like quail through the desert quail or kind of a ground bird. They fly some, but they, they run a lot on the ground and we were tracking some quail and I was practicing the practice of tracking in the Mojave Desert. And while we were tracking quail, we, we saw some snake tracks kind of cross the path of the quail and I'm like I don't know if I want to keep tracking like I want to back up like I don't know this is, I was a rattler bull snake I was tracking became unfun I was like this cute little quail I'm down quail's good meat <laughs> not that we were hunting but then someone had seen something like cross my path that could defend itself that might be tracking me or could be hidden and I didn't see it and could strike me we have several poison snakes here in the Mojave Desert we have the Mojave Green and the Sidewinder and the, the Diamondback I think a couple other ones, but those are the primary ones out there. We don't see them much anymore because people have killed a lot of them, unfortunately. But the idea is that when a stick crosses your path, you just don't know if the tracks, you'll know if that is that a rattler. I mean, Sidewinder is pretty obvious the way it tracks look, but everyone else kind of looks the same. But point is, is that emotionally and intellectually, I kind of took that lesson of tracking into my, like I often in my anti-racism work. And I started realizing ways in which I naturally tracked space. And I remember... I was working with a young black person that had a pretty abusive parent. I mean, pretty, a very abusive parent, um, physically and emotionally and financially in so many ways. One of those kind of really traumatized states they were in. And we were in our house and the house was a wooden house off the ground. You could hear the footprints. Uh, If someone's walking down the hallway, you could hear them, like the cadence of it. And I was talking to them about something. We were trying to sneak away and and, and get a bank account for them so they can go to college. They're right. They're 18. They're trying to like kind of execute out of this kind of traumatized home. And I'm talking to them about this thing and they stopped talking. I'm like, why do you stop talking? They could hear the foot rhythms of the person walking, knowing that was their mom coming. I wasn't tracking. I was just talking, okay, go Chase Banker, US Banker, or Credit Union, what are we gonna do? And they stopped me like, Chase, stop it. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And within like 20 seconds, the door opens up and their mom is there. And I'm like, Oh, hey, I didn't even know they were coming. They knew it 30 seconds before a critical 30 seconds because their the nervous system is tracking the house rhythms of footsteps. People walking by the room, not a problem. They could tell by the, the heaviness, the cadence that it was the one they were tracking, the, the one that was going to be most likely violent, one that's most likely to be problematic. My point is, is that I realized that moment that I could have been more attuned to the space. I could have settled myself and not been so focused on this bank account, which is very important, but also like, where am I? And folks, in the hood, folks in environments where are threatened, they're kind of going to tell when a car drives a certain way or a certain siren. They're just constantly tracking the room. And if someone's not in that space, they're not tracking. So I've learned from, from changing from wealth environments to poor environments to nature environments that there's a constant energetic tracking that one can practice, especially if you're, say, in the Northwest and you're in a white-controlled space. You can slow down and go, wait a minute, I've been comfortable here for a while. I love this natural environment. I love going in the closed optional swimming area. This is home for me. I can't find a better white utopic environment for myself. And then go, let me slow this down and go, wait a minute. What can I notice about people with global majority that may or may not be as comfortable in this environment? What kind of energetic footsteps can I start to pay more attention to 
that they are. Now, I find myself as a black cis male that oftentimes is finding up in Eugene or in Portland or in Seattle or in Squim or in Duval. There's a very, you know, variety of things that black bodies like myself aren't often there. I find myself having to track a lot of the footsteps that move through the space for white bodies folks around my own safety. It doesn't mean I don't go for jogs, go on hikes, enjoy myself. It means that when I watch, I watch body language, I watch where the black brute trauma story comes up for white bodies. I track it not only in workshop, but I track it also in the context of my own survival. I watch my own back as much as I can. And I invite people that are in my allyship circle to help support that narrative. And some pretty powerful folks doing that on a regular basis that do that. So tracking is being able to slow down your reality and assess it, not just for your own comfort, not just for what you're used to seeing, but saying, what does it mean to slow it down and give an observation that might allow me to say, how's the experience for Aaron? Not to overtrack Aaron, not to take his autonomy from him, but what is it like for his body to be in this space? And what kind of questions can I ask to notice for other black bodies or people with majority or BIPOC use interchangeably that come into my space. The tracking is to be able to really, it's really a slowing down. It's assessment. It's a humbling of. It's a inconvenience at times to allow space for other experiences to be acknowledged, to be heard. Those whispers don't get unheard that oftentimes are constantly being asked of folks, particularly when we talk about like integrating white controlled spaces, but that could happen across the board from gender to economics to geographic location. But that's what I mean by tracking. It's really hearing those energetic footsteps, paying attention to those little things that could tell you a whole lot more about your environment or give an opportunity for someone else to be seen. I did understand it. And I'm happy to hear the level at which you said it again. And I also recognize that there have been times that you and I have shared space that I felt like I did track something and then I I didn't speak up or I didn't go offer you support in some way. And so I apologize for having missed that opportunity to make your space more amenable to your thriving. You and I have been in white controlled spaces together and I'd be happy to hear from you if I noted this accurately and what I could have done instead. So at the last big event that you and I were at, there was a, a time when like white people were jovially everywhere. And I saw you like just laying down and just like taking an energetic break and sort of, if I could, I would create a bubble of energy around you to just like hold you. What could I have done differently? And I don't know that you and I know each other enough for me to be able to create more safety for you or if it would have been like, and so that's why I didn't reach out. I was like, I, I don't know. It's just oh, like yeah. one more white person checking uh, in on you to like make it worse or if it would have helped. I love you so much. I mean, I think just you noticing that, like just tracking the contrast of choice of energy. And I've learned to be in white controlled spaces and not just like get sucked into like white comfort and joy. And it's times where I can just enjoy myself too. But also if I'm not feeling that at that moment to be in my own space amongst their their energy, which is something I practice with a lot of groups, but white people are particularly interesting. And I think, and not to get too detailed on, on the moments that you could be referring to, but I'll just speak to it. If I recall, there was like a band, I think uh, Christian and Sarah were playing and they're, they're amazing. I love them. But they're like rock stars in the context of like white utopic space. When they get going, like white people are like, yeah, like, ah, they're in their stuff. And, and so they're, they're in their moments, in their stuff. And I, I know Christian and Sarah personally, and so I, I, I love their music too. I loved it for 12 years ago. And white people are like in their chunk and bliss, right? And so 
there's a couple of things that I think is important in that moment is one is just we to notice it is like foundationally most important to me. Not that you have to even do anything about it, just notice it. So if I do raise my hand for support, that somebody's already been pre-tracking the space and be like, hey, let's back up, brother. Now I'm like, what? why are you upset? Why are you reading? What's going on? They're like, I was already talking from day one. Like, I understand that there's a different experience for Aaron potentially than all the utopic behavior. The other piece that's important to note about that event, I want to say it was 150 or so people. And I went through a whole lot of effort to get black bodies to that event. There's probably more people go majority there than I've seen in most Northwest white events. And that and me and Ali have been working together for many years to work on all kinds of stuff, but also to help this event. And I was the only cis black male that made it that day for a variety of reasons. COVID life. I was the only cis black male in the entire event. And I would say the majority of the event was like white women, and then we had some queer folks too, and you know, kind of, but white women was probably the majority. So when it was a perfect storm for like I couldn't reach out and grab a brother's hand. Like that was impossible because he wasn't even present. I was it. I was grabbing myself's hand. So I was just like and I think that there's a way that I mentioned that to people that were there and they didn't even notice I was the only cis black male there. They were like, well, I, you were? I thought there were some other, I were some other, other black people there, but like just tracking cis men, like what point is, is that like as okay as I was that entire weekend, that lands that people didn't realize that I was the only cis black male there because they were having so much fun. That they should have fun on some level, but there's a, the way of like, is there a way to have fun and there it is, and to notice. And what you did is you did both. I imagine you had fun there and you also tracked me in that moment. And I say that in the sense that, that, that I'm not trying to erase fun, but I'm trying to erase is when fun is on top of the erasure of someone's experience, I think that becomes a little bit more of a problem. So my point, what could you have done better I, or differently? I would say not much. I think it's really good to just track. And I, I feel really good with you. I loved having you and several other folks I could just look at and they were like, I see you, I'm tracking you. I could feel it, I could feel it in that space. And I actually used a handful of you all that I did that, that made that experience so much more accessible. And so I think there's a way, I, I don't think you should underestimate your tools of noticing. The other piece I'll say though, and that's what we're doing kind of right now, but organically, is that the event is one thing, but aftercare is oftentimes forgotten. Oftentimes, an event like that ends is a big energy and no one wants to follow up and say, hey, it's been a couple of months. How are you doing? What's moving? How can we get better? How can we shop? I just want to check in. Okay, everything's good? Great. I've, I'm here if something pops up. That, to me, is oftentimes where I find Aaron find the most nourishment. And so for me, what I would say is that I, I imagine if I stay healthy and life is good and we can predict things, that we'll be at another event. We'll be at another event together probably. And I think there's a way that, that every time we recur because of the aftercare, because of the care between, because of the research between, that I'll be able to even grieve more or celebrate more or be more in my in my interruption in the white controlled space because of that growing critical mass of people that are able to notice both. And so even though that was probably the most grounded white event I have attended in the last uh, six months, maybe parallel to a couple other ones on the East Coast, I would say that piece, the aftercare piece is where I would say lean in 80% right now. And also I think there's a way that over-tracking can be more interruptive than actually supportive. So I felt in that moment, very empowered to be laying on the ground for a half hour, 20 minutes, I don't know how long I was on the ground, where everyone else was like literally like dancing around me. I think I got a foot foot uh, a foot washing by some amazing folks halfway through the experience. It was pretty special and tender on people who go majority. So I, I, I think uh, a couple of the black folks came by and said, I'm checking here. I'm here for you for a couple of moments. I'm, I'm tracking you. And I was like appreciative. So I felt like there was skill in the room. It wasn't in a complete 
unskilled space. So because of that, there are many hearts holding me and tracking me in that space. It was a much different container than it was eight years ago when I showed up to the song community and other communities. And I didn't know anybody but like one person in the space. And I was the only black male and one of one or two black men in their space. And the other black male might have been like really a part of the community and really feeling grounded or really has blended in in a way that feels good for their nervous system. And I was still trying to find my my footing in the space. And so because I'm I'm five years in, even COVID taking out some of that, I'm five years in, I feel because of the workshops we've done and your interaction, and it was like yours, that I find this group being so much more accessible. So I'll pause there, but that we, mm-hmm. what I would say is, if anything, it's not the moment of, it's the moments after. Uh, yeah, after, after, noted. There's like a hangover after festivals anyway, and there's sort of like a reaching out that can happen. And I will make special note to be tracking you after as well. So one of the things you did was teach a beatboxing in the event. Did you end up getting any people who did some beatboxing and sent you videos after? I have been a great drip of Instagram and texts from folks that are sending me songs and beatboxing. It has been one of my favorite parts of post-tour is these like kind of not random, like perfectly timed little clips. One minute, three minutes it has been a gift. It's been precious. I've been getting some nice drips. Y'all are on it. And, and and those that might hear this, keep them coming. I love it. Do you feel comfortable talking about beatbox certification and why you do it and how it came about? Yeah, people took it too seriously and not serious enough all at the same time. <laughs> but there's a section of my song circle where I, I say we're going to get on beatboxing certification. And that started years ago. My brother sent me a video 15 years ago where I was doing like a beatbox version of beatbox certification. I was like, stop, I've been doing that long. I just forget how long I've been doing this. And back then it was actually technical. It was like, this is how you beatbox. And I would teach people how to beatbox. And it's true. And over the this particular last tour that has evolved from a technical part of my song circle where you're learning a craft, which still kind of happens in some way, but it actually turned into an invitation for us to drop into um, musical meditation is, is a good way to look at it. Invitation for us to have a daily practice of making music, including beatboxing in our bodies and empower all of us to make music. And the beatboxing certification is that space where I invite that in. And it usually takes about a half hour. We have several beats we certify on and we work into, yes, a beat mantra sound, but we also talk about what it means to hear, what it means to have a daily practice, leaning back to the folks that have survived slavery and many other cultures that have passed songs oral culture-wise along for thousands of years, that this is them intentionally saying that I cannot live forever. So I'm going to take this song and I'm going to hand it to the young people around me and they're going to take this song and they're going to hand it and they keep doing it until we receive Wade in the Water, we receive I Want to Die Easy, we receive these songs because someone was intentional about handing it forward. Handing not just the, the words, but the spirit, the energy, the message. When you hear sometimes I feel like a motherless child, that is a powerful tender song for today. But if you were actually taken from your country and your children were separated from you in a kind of a slave bartering system structure or share and selling and buying of bodies, feeling like a motherless child in that body is different than us today that has you know, a much more different relationship with slavery in the United States as we know it. It's still happening in a lot of different levels, but not in the same formal way that it was at the birthplace of the United States. And so for me, the the three-minute meditation that we invite people to take on after that certification is not just I'm a beatboxer, is I have intention in my day to make music with attention with another being 
or with the earth if I don't have another human being with me with the intention to hand this down so that the next generation has a practice in the house. So maybe we all eat dinner together. Maybe we all take walks together. Maybe we all go to Disneyland once a year. I don't know, whatever we have. Also, we all make music together for three minutes in a quick meditation. Now, some people do have song sessions and even jam and families do things, but this is not that. This is three minutes every day where I put my vocals, my beats, my melodies together, and hopefully that drips into me and my children, me and my neighbor, me and my partner, me and whoever is in that intention space that now becomes the rhythm of care of interruption in the day. So that's something you can do at work. You could do when you brush your teeth in the morning. You can do and so that the mobility of it is what the, where the magic is. The certification is just a, a really simple, practical, I think oftentimes deep way for us to take music out of its performance state and to bring it into a daily practice that is as efficient, as important as any other spiritual practice we may have that can handle living beyond our biological body. So people take it too seriously around the beatboxing part of it. They want to get technically good, which is great. Get, get, get. But they get almost undervalue the intention of a life practice that's daily, that's musical, that's accessible, and that has creativity attached to it and musical attached to it, and sometimes lineage of song attached to it. So that's the beatboxing certification that has been in deep evolution for my song circles, particularly this tour. And I hope that I can build on it next cycle I go next year. From the receiving end, it feels like I've been invited into a shared space. Like there's this like safe space that is created in which there's play, there's spirituality, there's care. There's a attention to wanting to hear and feel everyone else in the experience I want to kick it to you. You haven't experienced the beatbox lesson, but hearing it from Aaron, hearing it described, what's your response? How do you feel? I feel so excited about that. Like listening to you talk, I was like, what? Like we can sing, we can make music and it doesn't have to be about performance it doesn't have to be like about an end result or a product that's so cool (laughs) yeah I'm like that sounds like an amazing practice and listening to you talk about the beatboxing certificate and also about the touch practice it makes me think about how at least how it is like sifting through in my brain is like these are such beautiful ways to reclaim things that at least for me as someone who was socialized to be a cis woman who's not a cis woman and was also socialized to lean into my whiteness as much as possible and to like move through the world not ever being in service to myself or to my communities, like the tender touch and the beatboxing certificate are like ways to reclaim what I have been taught are practices of performance and practices that we don't do for ourselves. Like I was raised to hold singing as, yeah, like something that you learn technically or like a talent that you do or don't have. And I was taught that like touch is part of a narrative that is almost entirely sexual. And that is also performance-based and doesn't actually have anything really to do with me. Mm. So, I mean, 
those two things are like different and they still do to a degree like feel more like performance in my body than they do like practice like choice and I'm just like oh I get so excited and like my body feels shivers listening to you talk about these things because I'm like it's putting so much more choice to these things and asking us like how can we actually take back these things that belong to us things that I mean that a lot of us do not have choice in or like are not raised thinking that we have choice in Mm. and what you're thinking is so on point around performance and touch and I think there is a way that you know, trauma stories can show up in all kinds of ways to shape how we interact with our bodies and others. But there is a school of thought that I would love to be in collaboration with a lot of people to really examine what touch can feel like and what music can feel like. Because there's a little touch plan for someone. I know we're just having pieces of other podcasts, but animals is one that we talked about too. But singing has been a powerful place for us to, you know, singing is touch. We say that a lot in our workshops, in our touch plans and there's a way that singing is my voice vibration goes into your body and that's a little energetic and practical exchange of energy but there's a tenderness and vulnerability when singing doesn't become a performance when it's not and it could sound gorgeous or could sound in all kinds of ways but there's a way that that's not the actual place that we get excited like we could appreciate beautiful harmonies but not that's not the place where we stop thinking like now we're done now that, now that music has now hit its highest level. And I look at from the baby cry to the baby little grunts when I mm, mm, kind of, mm, that's all singing. That's all music. It's all part of how we get to express sound. And so taking the musicality in its raw form and as it gets more refined and more raw, but making sure that our guiding point is not that was a good performance or that's on pitch or that's in key. I'm not against keys and, and pitch, but in this practice, it's not as useful. It's really restrictive to say these are the only keys that the voice can be in that we can accept and these are when we don't accept. When I think of grief, of pleasure, there's so many ways to experience sound like a sound, like medicine to the body that we're missing when we just stick to the keys and the pitch and then the performance. I'm not anti-performance, I'm not anti-pitch, I'm very clear. So a name that that's like 2% of the musical and human experience, we're just smothering us. I'm just saying that's there, but let's make sure we acknowledge everything else we're experiencing and start to revalue the way that that's not monetizable in that way. And so because that's the case, I think you're just speaking to some really important places that I wish I could tell you there's a, a utopic of people, the little majority has already gathered here that have this all figured out. We've been gathering without any major conflict and we've funded and everything. It doesn't exist yet, but I feel like it's more on the horizon. We have this land here, 109 acres. We have this, I mean, this beautiful cob house here that has been built for humans to do just this kind of work. And so for me, I just want to name that your thinking and whoever else hears this, that that's on the horizon. And I don't mean like 10 years from now. I mean like next year, our first like <laughs> camp, people go majority, cuddle gathering is going to be planned. Like we're within six months of striking distance for that. So I just want to name that as we fundraise and organize that what you're thinking, I think can really ignite a critical mass of people go majority to gather and make this a norm make it Googleable if I can use my, <laughs> my my TEDx language here in this moment because I think it should be. Oh my God, that's so exciting. Ah wow. When you were talking about listening to the sounds that babies make for 
closeness and being heard and felt. This week I put in some hearing aids that turned out that they don't work, but I've tried to get for my husband. And so I put them in and they work in the sense that they amplify everything. And so I was hanging out with my dogs and they make so many more sounds than I ever imagined. And so there's like all these little, like little sniffles and like grunts and like all this stuff. And so then I just copied, you know, or, or responded, right. It wasn't just an echo, but I was responding to what they were saying or doing, you know, and they would sniffle and I would sniffle and they would grunt and I would grunt. And they were like, oh my God, you could hear that. The dogs just like, didn't know what to do with themselves. It was really fun. Profound. Yeah. I'm really, really intrigued and I'll be in need of how you tend to animals because I don't have that. I mean, I've seen dog training with like Petco and they have their like obedient dog training. But the more I start to look into your work, I realize how much different that is than, yeah, there's a dominating piece and I have some very dominating dogs. And so that's what I mean that there's a level of like, when I was young with Toby, one of the things I was in homeschool and so I had plenty of time to be at home and I would just be wrestling her. I would talk to her. I would, probably organically do a lot of that like mimicking back and interacting with and get them all fours and being low down and i don't do that as an adult that's probably why me and toby has such a bond i think that she really understood um who i was how i should have been energetically and she was also such an amazing dog in that way but there's a way that i think you're bringing it into like a formal container of like how we can make this a practice this one i appreciate that and get really invested in this new puppy that i have and part of it is time is I'm working a lot here in Amal Earth and traveling a bit and I still have time, but there's time is a quandary here. So I, I think there's a way that I'm not trying to hack it, but and trying to figure out how to do more with less time. But I, I just want to track that with time being a restrictive factor. Yeah, how to coexist with dogs in a way that I haven't ever in my life. So that's why I name that as I know we can't go into your complete practice right now in 10 minutes or eight minutes left, but I just want to name that as a, a seed planted in a desire to really get into my healing around how I tend to dog coexisting with. Yeah. So I would love to share some insights if that would be useful. Cause I hearing that you have very little time that you may not delve into all the material in the school. So I'll inspire you and maybe you'll find yourself on a plane and watching a video or something. So basically I think dogs are excellent at being in whatever environment we create, just as all beings are. Like if once there's any community that's together, like whatever our stuff is comes out in that community. And the same thing happens with our canine companions. Like, so with dogs who live, I was going to say choose to live with us, but they don't choose. We have fences and things, but in India, for example, dogs do choose to live in community with people. And if we think of life as a competition and domination, they will reflect that as well. So I've been to clients that like their dog only bites the cis wife because the man has a very dominant idea that humans have to dominate dogs. And so that goes into the way that he treats the dog. And then the dog's sort of like, okay, I guess there's a pecking order. And then it goes down, down the line. So the answer there is not to punish them for being quote dominant, but to actually dismantle the concept within that family structure and to make it more collaborative and to take into account the needs. And so basically, if I was to plant any sort of seed in terms of how to be with a non-human animal in your life, or particularly a dog, is to meet them at the level of beingness, of what does this being need, and that any behavior is an attempt to meet a need. 
And if that mm. behavior doesn't fit with your community, it's not because that animal has something wrong with them because dogs want to live in community. Like they seek out community if they don't have it. They don't live in like large groups. They usually have like two or three that they live with if they're uh, like a, in the wild, like in villages. There's a couple that they sort of like, that's their tight family. And then there's like acquaintances and then there's more strangers, but they do like to be around other beings. And so they developed a lot of the same social skills we have, but largely they're better at it because because they're really good at like tracking the soma. Like they are physical beings and they can see us moving in ways that we don't notice. And we take their space in so many ways. Like if a dog is laying on the ground, do you walk right through it? Do you walk around it? Do you walk over it? Do you say, excuse me? How are you physically interacting with the dog? And if their stress level is calmer, then they have also then a better chance at offering behaviors that are pro-social. And so like, there's so much learning that happens in dogs. So just be curious is all I can say is like with, with whatever time you have that you are around the dog, be curious and see what they have to share to you rather than assuming as the human that you are there to teach them only. Mm. Um, Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Man. Yeah. Sorry. That's the big level. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's not, this is perfect. It's just, it's, I can see my brain getting new information going, this is how I must change yeah, I have a whole lot to think about. So I'm going I'm to find your, I, I know you have a desire. You already sent to me. I will engage. Mm, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. So good to be here with you. Mm. Appreciate you. And your audience. Hope to meet you all. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. The lesson is love. The lesson is la, 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 love. The lesson is love. This work of universal love takes all of us. So if you think this podcast might inspire someone you know, please share it with them. The Lesson is Love is a project of the Grisha Stewart Academy and Empowered Animals, produced by the thoughtful Diane Redding and me, Grisha Stewart. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it. And we have extra podcast perks at grishastewart.com love. Please check out my academy to learn more about thriving in community with dogs. May you be free from suffering. May you know you belong. May you live a life of meaning and purpose. And with every choice, may you turn toward love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love.